Welcome to On Your Own Terms. I'm Patty Talbot, and this is the place where we learn together what it takes to change the world on our own terms and in our own special way. Today, I'm so pleased to welcome changemaker Anne Campbell. Anne and I have known each other for quite a long time. She's my neighbor. She was my OBGYN nurse practitioner back in the day over 30 years ago. And for the last 15 years, she has been working passionately on a project called the Sojourn Center. Today, Anne has agreed to be with us to tell us her story using the Blue Roads Changemaker Framework homegrown solutions for a patchwork world. Welcome, Ann Campbell. Thank you, Patty. And um, I really appreciate your asking me to do this. I'm honored, you know, to be considered in your mind a change agent for our community. And I was born and raised in Blacksburg, Virginia. And I left for probably about 10 years going to school and working, and then returned to Blacksburg in 1980. My dad grew up in Maine, and he was the first person in his family to go to college. And when he left for school, he was basically told, good luck. And so he had to finance his entire education on his own. And so... As an influencer, to me, one of his big things in life was education. And so he went on and got a PhD and taught as a college professor in horticulture, ultimately at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg. The other thing about my father, maybe this is because he was a Northern maniac, as they're called, he was a very upfront person and he had kind of a mantra or motto that was reinforced at home all the time. And that was that you must be a contributing member to society. And that always really stuck and I think is part of my being who I am. My mom was raised on a farm in Ohio. So she has that work ethic as well. She went to secretarial school and also taught piano. They were a nice blend, I think, together. She was more a person who stressed the importance of relationship and of kindness and brought that to the table, I think, in my life. And she was also very community spirited. She was extremely active in our church, in her garden club. She did flower arrangements every week for the church. And they jointly were together in things like playing bridge, all the kid things. And a key family activity related to, as I say, digging in the dirt, which I love to this day. We knew in the summertime that we had to pick row one and three of the beans 
and the first row of the raspberries and this sort of thing before we could go swimming with our friends or do other activities. So there was a work ethic contributing to the good of the family. The way my foundation in the family influenced me was that there was just this normal expectation that you were going to become educated and that you were going to contribute to the community around you and you were going to also contribute to folks from all different backgrounds. The other thing I think that is quite an influencer for me is I was born the last child, the sixth child of my parents. As the last child, my mom was 41 when I was born. At that time, which was in the early 1950s, that was really an elderly mother. And so I lived a life with parents who were older. And as the child and only child who returned home, I became the caregiver of my parents as they aged. And that was a big influencer for me and for my children, because my husband and I have two children and they were raised with one set of grandparents that were 20 years younger than the other set of grandparents. No one else in my family was engaged in any type of health care. But after my sophomore year in college, I decided that I would transfer to the University of Virginia to go to nursing school. One of my experiences there, which I always remembered, was that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross came to speak to the nursing school. And as most of you know, she wrote On Death and Dying, and that was written in 1969, and this was like in 1973 when she came. And even though at that time in nursing school, I felt like my interest would be in pediatrics, I was totally taken by her conversation and have never forgotten it. She was the go-to guru on death and dying and grief. So she actually had a part. I read her books soon after she came. I think of ultimately at this stage in my life, having an interest in health and education about end of life and being a promoter of hospice and hospice care. When I finished nursing school, I worked in a pediatric emergency room and then in a newborn intensive care unit at both of those at the Medical College Virginia and then at, in a coronary care unit. I wanted to work in the high-tech, active, adventurous locations. My husband and I decided that we would 
be married and that we would try to see if we could make it work in the New River Valley, I decided I needed to change my direction in healthcare in order to make it work in this location in Blacksburg that the route was to become a nurse practitioner. I wanted the expanded role and in exploring our area, I felt like obstetrics and gynecology would be the area that would probably most likely work because there were no nurse practitioners in the New River Valley at that time. So I worked for 25 years as an OBGYN nurse practitioner. The other end of life from my interest as a change maker, I would say now, which is in hospice care and end of life care, but they blend together so well. You know, it's like at the beginning of life and the end of life, you really only have one chance to get it right. You don't have replays that can be done there. And so it's a very important time. And it's a time that there's the unfortunate opportunity to create a lot of trauma in people's lives if it's not done right. So it's very important. Two years before I retired, my father died of colon cancer. And we chose, or my mom primarily chose, to have hospice care for him. And it was a wonderful experience. And she had knowledge of hospice, having worked as a volunteer for hospice during her life. So it was an automatic decision that we wanted hospice. After his death, he was 91. My mom lived another two and a half years and she gradually had dementia. I had to hire people to help take care of her in her home. And ultimately I had left my position, I didn't realize I was retiring at that time, but I was, in order to take care of her. So I cared for her. She lived only about a mile away, and she wanted to stay in her home. She also had the benefit of hospice services at that time, and it worked. It worked well for both my dad and my mom to have hospice care in the home. Soon after they died, I became involved with a group in town that felt like it was really important to get more people educated about hospice care. And this group was started by several hospice physicians and nurses. The goal of that group at that time was to really educate healthcare providers, focusing on nurses, focusing on nurses' aides, on how important it was to educate families about hospice care and what a benefit it was. While doing that work, I was approached by several 
again, hospice physicians and hospice nurses and a few other community members about the real need for something, some way, somehow to help patients at the end of life who are falling through the cracks. They might already be hospice patients, but it wasn't working for them to have home hospice care. Something else was needed. It may be that they didn't have the financial resources to even have a safe home for the dying person to live in. It sometimes was the fact that there was a family situation where the death occurring in the home was not a good thing. Maybe there was a young child. Maybe there was a person with mental health issues for which a death in the home just was very traumatic for someone there. And very often it was because you had two elderly people that could no longer care for each other and they needed some place for the hospice care to take place. And there may be adult children, but they were working and they had their own life that they had to take care of. So this group of 10 people got together in 2007, actually, and decided that we needed work on getting some type of place that this problem could be solved, where people who it wasn't working at home, but were on hospice, could find relief and find support. So what do we do as a community to support this? And we learned that there are places called inpatient hospice facilities, commonly known as hospice houses, that are built just for this purpose. It took a couple years as we were getting our 501c3, getting our board organized, really deciding what we wanted to do, decided that we wanted to, in fact, build a hospice house for the New River Valley. At that time, there were only four hospice houses in the entire state of Virginia. And the Virginia Department of Health, who has the regulations related to hospice houses, were in their infancy with how to deal with hospice houses. What were the regulations? What could they do, et cetera? But the one thing we knew was that the Virginia Department of Health required that if you set up a hospice house, which can do very high level of acute hospice care, very similar to that in a hospital, that you had to have a hospice agency to clinically operate that hospice facility. Finding that hospice agency in the New River Valley has been one of our greatest challenges. So we approached a number of hospice agencies. Uh, we went through literally years of research, 
of networking, of conversation. We applied and received a number of grants. We have wonderful community members and churches that have helped us along the way. When I think of this over a decade process of working with Sojourn Center, which is a completely volunteer group, we don't have any paid folks, we have reached out to so many people in our community. So I would first of all say kind of a diversity of professions and talents. We have had folks who have been very engaged with the university, with healthcare systems, um, people who have strategic planning backgrounds that can help us, um, attorneys and folks that know about uh, developing boards, developing bylaws, how to apply for a 501c3, um, as well as a lot of just individuals who have benefited from uh, hospice care through the years. So I would encourage folks that you really need to, you know, wave your net wide in order to get opinions from everyone that you can in terms of diversity of their jobs and their backgrounds and that sort of thing. I think diversity of color is very important. Uh, we know nationally that there is especially underutilization of minority groups in their use of hospice services. We know that people in the Appalachian area, which is where we live, underutilize hospice. And the idea there is that a different culture of not necessarily wanting people to come into their homes and either be there or tell them how to take care of their loved ones. Um, there are a lot of different ideas and the socioeconomic diversity that is needed for this project, you can imagine, is huge. End of life has traditions. And if you talk to people of different cultures and different countries, there are a lot of different things that are normal and expected in helping their family member journey to the end of life. So that is critically important in dealing with this very intimate journey that all of us, in spite of what we may think, that all of us are going to pass through um, as we live to the very end. Let's fast forward to 2022. Where are we today after 
over a decade of work. Our idea about a hospice house, because there are no other hospice houses in our area, was to be kind of regionally broad. And we learned what we needed to do would become more centric just to our community. In our community, we actually have seven hospice agencies. Two of those are nonprofit, one that's associated with a big hospital system. We talked with all of these agencies and particularly the nonprofits without success on finding our operator. And Sojourn Center is the name of our project. Sojourn means a journey along the way and what a great name for that end of life journey. So we made an approach to a local large retirement community group called Warm Hearth Village. And Warm Hearth Village enjoyed a very good reputation in the community. Warm Hearth had already become a home health agency, as well as having serial retirement opportunities, nursing home, assisted living, independent living. So since Warm Hearth already had that home health connection with the Virginia Department of Health, moving into having a hospice agency connection was not a big stretch in Sojourn Center's mind. And in fact, we knew that Warm Heart had becoming a hospice agency already on their long-term strategic plan. So, wow, let's consider joining partnership with Warm Heart and them becoming a hospice agency and then potentially becoming the clinical operator for Sojourn Center. What, what a great partnership. The town of Blacksburg officials thought this was great. We thought this was great. And actually, Warm Heart thought it was pretty good too. So what a win, win, win for our community because the community was gonna benefit from having an inpatient facility for our community members here. So very wisely, Warm Heart said, well, we are gonna need a feasibility, several feasibility studies done to see if both financially and socially and for other reasons, this would work for Warm Heart Village. Sojourn Center agreed to pay for a feasibility study with two parts. One, what's the feasibility of this local retirement community becoming a hospice agency? Therefore, if the others were still here, making eight hospice agencies offering services. And what was the possibility once they became a hospice agency that they would consider running Sojourn Center, an inpatient hospice facility. We received 
a feasibility study report, both the 1st of August of this year and the 6th of October this year, which were very sobering and surprising results saying that, wow, there have been a lot of changes, especially in the last three or four years, including the advent of COVID, the influence and change that has come with the management and operating of a hospice house. Those changes are primarily related to, with COVID directly, we have workforce shortages that are making it difficult to get adequate staffing for hospice houses. In the study that was done, the consultant who only works with hospice and hospice houses told us that over the last three to five years, the number of beds that are occupied in hospice houses has decreased. And in part, this is from some pretty severe monitoring and restrictions by Medicare on payment for hospice services in hospice houses become very restrictive. And part of that is that they are doing a lot of auditing of patients admitted to hospice houses and while auditing, not paying the hospice houses for the services. So those are just a few of the rather surprising and sobering information that we received. And therefore it put Warm Hearth in a position where they could not consider at this time becoming an operator while they are still working on the idea of becoming a hospice agency. Since having a clinical operator committed is so important to the success of a capital campaign, which Sojourn Center was going to take on, unlike in most places where the actual hospice agency would use that, we're a group of community members who say, we'll take on the capital campaign. We're talking about a $5 million campaign to build this facility. We already have our fundraiser, we already have our architect. Uh, we already have things right in line. And yet here we are with the current hospice leaders. We had a specific regional study done in addition to the national study. And they are telling us they, as already operators of hospice houses, say, I would not do this in this current environment of Medicare restrictions, of decreased hospice house occupancy. And the most important thing is the underutilization of hospice care in our county. The Sojourn Center project has been my life, really for over a decade, it has been gut-wrenching. 
I have had days of lots of tears. I've had days where I just am not going to think about it <laughs> as if it didn't happen at all. It's been a really personal kind of spiritual time of searching on not the merits of the project, because I still feel absolutely committed and our entire board feels absolutely committed to how our community could benefit from building Sojourn Center. But to believe <laughs> that there really isn't enough utilization and that there's a regulatory system that is not allowing this service to move forward has just been very emotional. So I would say in an effort to be a change agent in your community or in other people's lives or whatever it is, we have to be ready, but not plan to be ready, <laughs> that things may not work out the way you want them to. Fortunately, our board of directors has chosen not to give up. And our plan is that we are just going to take what we call a temporary pause from the build effort, which of course implies going into fundraising and then building, but change our focus, refocus onto the fact that we have to address the underutilization of hospice in our community. We also have to address and monitor what's going on nationally and inform our citizens about the needs to communicate with our political base and our government agencies. Things don't always turn out the way you want them to, when you want them to. We're, we haven't given up, but I would encourage conversation as you move towards your projects and your goals to realize that you may have to change focus and you may have to change direction or what I call Sojourn Center has had a very circuitous path, which I think is means a winding journey. And we're taking quite a little wind uh, right now. How do you move forward when you have had uh, this hit, so to speak, about your project? I guess, first of all, I would say this isn't the first hit that we've had. And, you know, my husband always says to me, well, I wouldn't have stuck with this this long, you know. <laughs> so, uh, yes, we've had some other things, but those were doing the early years. And now we have so much history and so much investment in the project and knowledge about the benefit. We visited 16 different hospice houses in the course of the years. 
So we have so much more invested. So how do we how do we deal with the fact that it's not working the way we want it to? I think for me, one thing was to think about what would it be like if I did just say, okay, this is this project is over. I had to do a lot of self-reflection of that. And I, that became very personal because I started thinking about time and, oh, if I'm not doing this, I really may have time to read those books and go to quilting every week and walk with my friends. And I started becoming a little, gosh, life could be good in a different way. But then I started thinking, how great, what hospice and what hospice houses and specifically Sojourn Center could do for this community. And also how many people are friends of Sojourn Center and this project and how many people want this to go forward. So after I had my moments of Gosh, I could be on the easy street if I just gave this up. I came back to, let's think of a reality check of how maybe we could move forward and hopefully continue our ultimate goal of a hospice house. But in the process, bring a positive benefit to the community. Another piece of advice I would give to other change makers who run into roadblocks, and I heard this from the supportive people from our town, the town officials, the town council, and from wise friends, and from actually my pastor as well, that you don't have to be in a hurry at this very moment to decide what to do next. Take the time that you need to regroup because you are in fact grieving for that project and that process and that goal that you had. So you need to take some time to kind of grieve what the change is, and then take time to move forward, whatever that means to you. I think our project has some difficulties because you're dealing with such an intimate subject. We are in a society and a country that is very death averse. And within that country, we have a lot of healthcare providers who are also death averse. So we need a lot of behavioral changes on the part of healthcare providers regarding how to deal with that passage at the end of life. That is critical, critical and absolutely critical to the utilization of hospice care because most hospice care is delivered at the very end of life 
rather than that six months time period before the actual death when hospice usage can be so critical to patients. We're missing as a society the best thing that hospice care has to give by waiting so late until the acuity of a patient, patient's illness is so severe. I have a special message that if you know Mackenzie Scott, who you know is Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, she has billions of dollars and owns 4% of the Amazon state. I would like you to call her and tell her about Sojourn Center. <laughs> I don't want to say that money can solve any problem, but boy, it can really help. And we have a $5 million project to build Sojourn Center, and a lot more money is required to keep it operational. So if you just know some wonderful philanthropist who would like to help Sojourn Center, boy, I'd love to hear from you. <laughs> Thank you, Anne. I know our audience will be eager to reach out to you and learn more about the Sojourn Center and more about hospice care, hospice houses, and hospice services in their own communities so that they, like you, can become advocates for this very important time of life. Like Anna suggested, you might just want to reach out to Mackenzie Scott to see if she has the heart to support this very important project in the New River Valley of Virginia or a hospice house in your own community. It's work worth doing. Thank you for being with us today. I'm Patty Talbot. I'm always learning, and I know you are too. Music